Hey, everyone, and welcome to this week's episode of the Weird Tales Podcast. My name is Taiko Alhambra. Thank you for listening. If this is your first episode, welcome. I'm happy to have you regardless of your race, sexual orientation, or gender identity. We here at the Weird Tales Podcast believe that trans rights are human rights, that abortion is healthcare, and that black lives matter, and we stand in solidarity with you all. Transcripts of the show, as well as links to institutions fighting for reproductive justice, can all be found in the show notes. This is a story from a lady named Madeline Swan, who was kind enough to allow me to perform one of her stories on the show. I'm very grateful to her for the opportunity. Please check out The Sharp End of the Rainbow, a collection of short fiction by Ms. Swan, available on Amazon. Link to the book and to her Twitter are both in the show notes. Please go and give her a follow. The Sweating Shop by Madeline Swan The frozen November air didn't exist in that room. It was a furnace, a literal hellhole. Sweat trickled from my armpit down my corset, which sucked the breath from me more than ever. Mother turned from the women sitting cross-legged on the ground, some sixteen or seventeen of them, in a tiny space with naught but a charred mattress for resting, and gave uncle's man the unholiest of glares. Needles were pulled noisily through cotton, and candles sputtered beside the workers. "'You can't mean it,' said Mother. "'I was under instruction to find you what I could.' "'He's my sister's husband!' she wailed. Faces turned to us like withered sunflowers. We had arrived at the other end of Soho in a cab with decent horses paid for by Uncle from a comfortable middle-class house which now belonged to debt collectors. Even my sister looked pale. "'Well, she's dead,' said the gaffer. Air hissed from Mother's mouth. "'Got some duds from the warehouse, enough to get you going. All need four pence for morning and evening cuppa, plus a candle each weight, and six for the garment.' He waited as though we would rush to pay for our own torment. Wild-eyed, we watched Mother reach into her purse and count coins in her hand. "'Mother,' said Violet, "'you don't mean to go through with it.' "'What else can we do? What about Mr. Hillis? He said he'd do what he could.' She shook her head sadly. "'He already did what he could, which was a shilling and his best wishes.' I couldn't speak. Our neighbor's promises had been nothing but lies." "'There's always a Dolph house,' said the gaffer. "'But what then? You run out of money, it's under the Blackwall Tunnel.' His words weren't spoken with malice, but truth. There was no disdain in his eyes for us, but no care either. We thought of those inhuman shades in the mud and the filth beneath the bridge, living on scraps from the butchers and greengrocers, and handed him the money. We found a patch to set up, and my mind separated from my body. I wasn't surrounded by poor, bony souls— stitching shirts, waistcoats, and dresses. I was in my old nursery, looking through my kaleidoscope and setting up toy soldiers. I thought of last night, how we'd been too excited to sleep. Violet had given me a magazine I'd assumed to be Bo Bell's. Instead, it was a last month's issue of The Yellow Book, with a silly story about a female executioner, a pointless tale about a couple on a boat, and a depressing yarn about a failed musician reduced to performing in bordellos. I'd fair thrown it back at her, I hadn't expected an ending as unrealistic as Dickens, but what need had I of such bleakness? I was furious at my sister and furious at the author. "'You'd best get on,' a voice creaked behind us. I turned to see an old man looking at my sister, who'd thrown her needle and cloth to the ground. "'Why should I?' "'Don't make trouble, dear,' said Mother. "'Why not?' said Violet petulantly. "'This isn't where we're supposed to be.' "'And yet here we are,' I sighed. I was ignored." I'll write another letter to Mr. Hillis, or I'll try the vicar again. You tried them, I said. All we have to do is walk out. Violet's eyes burned. 
And go where? said Mother. The gaffer walked in, mouth open to tell us off, and Violet stormed past him. Mother called after her, and I watched uselessly, thinking of her shivering under the bridge or in the workhouse. Let her go, said the gaffer. She'll do all right out there. I couldn't speak, nor think of the implication. She had decided this place couldn't contain her, and that was that. I wiped a furious tear from my cheek and bowed my head once more. Hours passed, or perhaps only minutes. I tried to change the position of my hands so the pain in my left knuckles would lessen, but the dropped stitches forced me to return. Oh, said Mother. Hoping I wouldn't have to calm her, I looked up to see her staring at the door. Confused, I followed her gaze to the man striding towards us in the dark. Uncle! I'm so very sorry. Come on, both of you. Where have you been? said Mother. I just heard, he said, there's been a terrible miscommunication. Thank you, Mother wept, thank you. I was sick with pity for her. We followed him outside, to his bright blue carriage and strong chestnut mares, and a driver that hopped to the ground and opened the door for us. Every step brought us further from my sister, and if I didn't speak then, I might never, but the words were a foul soup in my stomach. We must wait for Violet, or search for her. I need to get back to the warehouses today. He spoke politely, kindly even, but his position was clear. Please, I said quietly, perhaps another day. Mother's eyes were wild orbs and she practically shushed me. I promise, he said. The seats were like clouds after the hard floor, and I was so relieved I didn't mind him staring at me from the opposite seat. The street bustled with omnibuses and handsome cabs, vegetables and dairy carts, costumongers, flower sellers, and matchstick girls. A group of well-dressed young men called noisily to one another. Talia's an unusual name, said Uncle. Not a Jewess, are you? Soho is full of them, after all. I should say not, Mother snapped. My husband was a good, decent man. My apologies, madam. I have a proposition for you both. I've a little place in the suburbs of Fulham which need a good hand. I've hired a maid, a cook, and a gardener, and I think it should be quite satisfactory. The noise from Mother's mouth was unseemly and animal. Such buckets of relief I had never heard, but I couldn't blame her. I, too, was overwhelmed. Wonderful, he smiled, showing the first real kindness we'd seen in weeks. As for Talia, I'm sure you'll be free to visit whenever you wish. I'm sorry? Yes, I added. What do you mean? I'm without a wife, he said, as though it were the most obvious point, and the place needs a woman's touch. I'm sorry, I thought you understood. His brow furrowed. We were absolutely still. It's a marvelous townhouse along Piccadilly with a satisfactory number of servants. It wouldn't do to be too ostentatious. Is that where we're going now? My voice was small. No, to the parish first. I couldn't allow an unmarried woman to stay, of course. No, said Mother, shaking her head sadly. Of course. But my dress is filthy. Not a concern, he said, smiling benevolently. Your beauty holds up. We've had no engagement. These are modern times, he said, shrugging. Why not seize the moment? I didn't make the final protest, the one that burned the most. But you are my uncle. Mother was hunched like the doll I once tore limb from limb because its face made me sad. And you promised to find Violet? I asked. Of course. Very well. Mother turned sharply to me. 
You're a good girl, she said. Such a good girl. Uncle sat back and smiled contentedly. The fog thinned as we traveled up the West End and the buildings became less charred. We stopped outside a handsome row of houses on the fashionable Piccadilly Circus, each hiding behind a fortified gate. It looked like a row of prison cells. Once he shut it behind us against the beggars, thieves, and starving dogs, however, I was intoxicated with relief. The front door had a tradesman's bell and a door knocker, and he invited me to announce myself as though I were a foundling child. The butler's bald head shone in an unsightly manner, but his smile was welcoming. The other servants fanned out behind him and greeted me politely. "'This is Esther, the scullery maid,' said Uncle, pointing to a young girl curtsying. "'Abigail, the housekeeper, Mrs. Williams, the cook, Albert, the footman, and Fisher, the butler. I fancied the housekeeper and cook should have been the opposite way round, for one was so plump and the other so thin, and the footman had bright red hair and a cocky manner.' He dismissed the servants aside from Abigail and showed me the parlor, a beautiful bright space with large windows and a white carpet with a study through a side door for uncle. Abigail led the way upstairs carrying my bag. Have you ever been so far into the West End? asked uncle. We went to the Golden Jubilee when I was eleven and to see Ivanhoe at the Royal English Opera House. Very grand, said Abigail beaming, but uncle seemed disappointed. Other than that, not at all. He brightened. He took my bag and showed me to a bedroom while Abigail waited outside. The floral bed covers were neatly tucked in, and a china washstand stood in the corner, and the busy street was visible from the tall windows. I could feel how soft the peach carpet was, even with my shoes on. Surely this was a cruel trick, and I would find myself back in the sweating shop? My room is down the hall, he said, and I exhaled too loudly. I hadn't realized how afraid I was of sharing his bed. In the morning, you can discharge your duties in the parlor. The books are on the shelf just behind the small table. They're blue, so quite easy to spot. The accounts have been meticulous until now, so everything should be simple. Perhaps this evening we can listen to the phonograph. I bought it from a vaudeville chap, you know. His hands flailed and cheeks pinked with excitement. He gave me a few songs, too. Funny fellow also had some roosters. Anyway, he said, catching himself... I'll let you get your rest. It's been a trying few hours for you. It was a vulnerable performance, and I found myself warming to him. I've a copy of Mrs. Beaton's I can lend you, said Abigail once he left the house, and I can spare a few minutes tomorrow, show you the ropes. Thank you. Thank you so much. Once she'd placed my bag on the bed and helped me out of my horrid clothes, Abigail fetched up a jug of warm water, and I bathed, pulled on a new nightdress, and retired with a sandwich. I pulled out Black Beauty, remembering the first time I read it. Mother and I both had smallpox, and she tried to get me to eat vegetable soup. I could almost feel her beside me then. I barely got through the first chapter before I was asleep. I woke on my back, pressed violently into the mattress. My eyes saw nothing when they opened, and my nose was squashed to the side. I tried to suck in air evenly and calmly. Whatever this was... Some solid, pliable brick, cool against my exposed hands and feet. I couldn't let it know I was awake. My outer shell was still and calm, but inside I was a firework of fear and repulsion. I tried to swallow, but the spittle caught in my throat. I talked myself out of coughing, though my eyes streamed and my breath quickened. I thought of those pictorial sketches of the Whitechapel women and imagined my own picture. 
I was no longer a person. I was an object for this thing to lay upon, and a thing for Abigail to find in the morning. Halfway through inhaling, I was light again. I sucked in breath to the bottom of my lungs, remaining frozen, afraid it was in the room still, my heart the most active part of me. My eyes adjusted enough to stare at the ceiling. Eventually, the dawn chorus told me it was safe. I had lived. I wrapped myself in my blanket and went to the cushioned windowsill, where I drew my knees to my chest. The market carts trudged towards Covent Garden, the drivers beside their horses on foot, while the pure collector, a pretty little girl with dark hair and a lilac dress, gathered manure before the sweeper came. As dawn broke, the shop girls and clerks hurried to work. Everything looked so normal. My room was the same, the city was the same, and when Abigail entered carrying cup, teapot, letter, and toast on a tray, she was as cheerful as yesterday. Can't sleep? Um, no. To be expected, first night and all that. I'll wet the bed first night in service. First job I had to do was clean my own sheets. I was torn between wishing she hadn't told me and grateful to be so accepted. She laid the tray on the bed, and I got back in, pulling it to me while she fussed over the room. I opened my mouth to tell her of the brick, but nothing emerged. When both she and my breakfast had gone and the day's dress laid out before me, I tore open the letter. It was Mother, assuring me she loved the house and suggesting we write weekly. I remembered how kind Uncle had been and his excitement over showing me the phonograph and decided I should pretend last night hadn't happened. I pulled on the sleek skirt and smart blouse, ready for my meeting with Abigail. The fire roared in the parlor and warmed my hands over it. Abigail rapped on the door and I called her in. You'll get chill blinds. I'll, I'll be fine. The last entry in the book, like all the others, showed the week's in and out takings with the final totted up in the right-hand margin. Why doesn't he pay a bookkeeper? I said, sulkier than intended. He don't trust him. She pointed to the first entries of the week, milk and eggs. Just add those together while I'll fetch scrap paper and Mrs. Beaton's. All right. I still hadn't done it by the time she returned, feeling all the horror and shame of a child waiting for her governess. Oh, law! she cackled, and I slammed the thing shut. Oh, no need to fat, madam, she said, embarrassed at my anger, and showed me how to work the sums on the page before entering the final in the margin. The total was lower than the week before, and lower still than the week before that. I felt I should hide the page from her, but she patted my hand. We all go through tight spots. We've just got to be a bit careful till it picks up. These unions are a flash in the pan, you'll see. A sudden violence rose in my breast, and I wanted to tell her to stop talking in idioms. We were in trouble, and we should be honest about it. Eager to quell the feeling, I asked the first question that came to mind. Do you see much of your family? She looked up sharply in surprise, and it was a moment before she answered. A bit. I'll get a letter once a week and send one off same day to my cousin. She's expecting... Her husband's a costermonger in Covent Garden, out there all hours selling fruit and veg. He does what he can. How do you mean? Just, my father lives with them. Gammy leg, not much good to anyone. They've got to look out for him otherwise. Her mouth snapped shut, and she stood, dusting off her pinafore. Otherwise what? Come on, I won't say anything. Power at knowing she couldn't refuse me information sent my heart beating hard, and my head was light. Abigail sighed. We was going to open a haberdashery at one point, but you know how it is, one thing after another. She straightened books that didn't need straightening and opened the door. Perhaps it could still happen. 
I could ask uncle, uh, my husband. Oh, he mustn't. Honestly, it, 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 was, it was a bit of silliness. I have a good position here, and, 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 and we get on, don't we? Her eyes were large and needy, and I realized my cruelty. Of course. When she was gone, I stared into the fire. The wicker basket beside it was filled with logs and the scuttle with coal, and I knew there was more fuel at the bottom of the stairs in the servants' quarters. I could have been a cat on a velvet cushion for how well I felt taken care of, were it not for the sums I had just done and the memory of that thing. I snatched up pen and paper and wrote of the suffocation to mother, but threw it on the fire and responded to her bland pleasantries with more of the same. I ordered the stable hand to ready the carriage and pinned on a hat with the tallest feathers. I marveled at Piccadilly Circus, at the handsome cabs and omnibuses circling the tiny roundabout outside the London Pavilion. Strollers and sightseers chose between fancy restaurants and tea rooms such as the Cosmopolitan Café Monaco or the chic Criterion Hotel. I was among it all, yet apart, safe in the carriage as in the confines of my new home, as though adrift in a bubble. I closed the curtains, not because I hated the sights, but because I couldn't bear my own happiness. My fists balled and I beat them against my legs in a most unseemly manner. This was my home. This was my kingdom. This was where I belonged. Like a madwoman, I expressed my joy, whacking my thighs harder and harder, faster and faster until I was spent and sat back, the picture of restraint and more than a little embarrassed. Again, the sums returned to me. My comfortable peach bed could be snatched away after all. On the way back, I bought some fine material for Abigail, imagining the dresses and shawls she could make with it, determined to be a good mistress. I called for her when Fisher let me in. Unfortunately, Abigail is taken ill. Ill? She was perfectly fine this morning. Fisher shifted uncomfortably. It was rather sudden. At first I advised her to work through it, but she was sent to bed. Hearing his unspoken words, I panicked. Something happened. Shall I fetch someone? The doctor has been fetched. He said it was no more than a fainting spell. She'll return tomorrow. In the meantime, myself, Esther, and Albert will take on her duties. Of course. I wanted to tell him I didn't mind about duties. I wasn't so heartless, but I didn't. Instead, I passed him the brown bag of fabric and retired to the parlor. I yelped when Uncle burst in. I'd been so engrossed in thinking about anything but the book in my hand. My poor darling, he guffawed. I never took you for the nervous type. He took the seat opposite and grinned throughout Fisher's serving of sherry. Some marvelous news, he said when we were alone. We acquired Samuels today. Only a small venue, but it keeps the wolves at bay. Really? That's wonderful. We danced to the same three songs on the phonograph and listened to jokes by the previous owner. I didn't understand them and took my cues from Uncle, who virtually screamed with hysteria. It was with a fuzzy head that I climbed the stairs that night. I woke as though shot with a pistol, but thankfully nothing pressed me down. I'd forgotten to blow out my lamp and watched it flicker, waiting and listening. A low wail issued from downstairs, apparently the thing that had roused me. Irrationally, I wondered who had allowed a dog in and carried the lamp down the two flights of stairs to the servants' quarters, all set to give them a piece of my mind. The brass sconce had been lit, and the bustle was otherworldly against the door. "'Oh, ma'am!' squeaked Esther, staring rudely. "'Esther, hot towels!' barked Fisher, setting the girl scampering to the kitchen. "'Forgive us, ma'am. Abigail has taken ill. 
It wouldn't do to upset yourself. It's, it's all in hand. Please let me see her. Something turned in Fisher's mind. Perhaps rather I fancied myself a Florence Nightingale. I'll keep back, I promise. Just, I must see her. My words shook. I was astonished at how moved I was, but she had been the first person since our money troubles in Soho to be so kind. Very well, but be aware, she's not quite herself. As soon as I entered her room, I wished I hadn't. Abigail, it's the mistress to see you, Fisher said as though to a geriatric. Abigail lay in her bed, lit up by a single gas lamp on the chest of drawers. She was bloated, her face, wrists, and neck considerably puffier than before, and her skin was pale like a maggot. The effect was terrible, and going near her felt like approaching my own death. I sat on the bed, and her black eyes followed my every move. I saw fear in those eyes, and a vacuum of hope. Not knowing what else to do, I placed my hand over hers. Her eyes still didn't leave mine, though her lips quivered and a trail of spittle ran down to her chin. Fisher grunted an oh dear sound and wiped it away with a cloth. The evening's roast duck roiled in my stomach. Esther returned with the towels and Mrs. Williams carried in a bowl of steaming hot water. I didn't see what good it would do, but supposed they wished to feel useful. Sensing my presence resented, I made my excuses and left, rushing back up the stairs, vibrating with disgust. I wiped my hand hard on my dress again and again, then rinsed it in the glass of water by my bedside. When I had removed it from Abigail's, there were four deep imprints where my fingers had been, as though she were made of clay. And that is the end of part one of the story. We'll have the conclusion next week. If you enjoy the show and would like to help support it, please feel free to join me on Patreon. Patrons of the show get access to each episode a day early, as well as bonus readings twice monthly. Thanks to Damon Bowles, John Meadows, and Marco Van Putin for your support. Please go and get vaccinated for whatever you're eligible to be vaccinated for. If you see a bigot out and about and doing a bigotry, pull his pants down. And always remember that the most important step a person can take is always the next one. Thank you so much for listening, and I'll see you next week.